Thanks so much, Seb and the team. Amazing. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. This passage falls just after the great faith chapter of Hebrews 11, which explains to us how the saints of the Old Testament looked forward to Jesus Christ and that we now have that which they had longed for. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, it was my first year of high school. I was a skinny, scrawny, 13-year-old boy. I was overwhelmed by the fact that I was surrounded by boys who seemed to look like giants. One of those giants was also new to the school, but he was 17, and he had the reputation of being one of the best sprinters in the province. I don't remember his name, but I do remember his reputation. He belonged to my house, Gillingham. So when Interhouse Athletics Day arrived, the excitement was palpable because his ultimate race was the 200-meter sprint. We were expecting that record to be broken. Now at Kersney Interhouse Athletics, the three big races were the 200, the 400, and the 100-meter race. And the whole day was designed to build up to those three races. They were held in the last sort of half an hour, 45 minutes of the day. By four o'clock that afternoon, our house was marginally in the lead, and all we had to do was win one more major race to clinch the title. Our champion sprinter lined up for his ultimate race, the 200 meter. The starter gun blasted. He literally blew the competition out of the water, and his blistering pace broke the record. He ran straight and true. One thing I noticed, was that for the whole race, he focused on the finish line, never wavering. Now, Ahas had another champion who happened to hold the record for the 400-meter race. But he was ill that day, so the team captain convinced the 200-meter champion to run the 400-meter race. And this took place about 20 minutes later, and we were all convinced that this guy was going to set yet another record. He started well, and he was far in front after the first 100 meters but then his head started to drop. He started to look around, he lost his rhythm. By the 300 meter mark, two other runners had caught up. His endurance was gone. He was blown, he had hit the wall, and he ended up coming last. He wasn't prepared for that race. In fact, he wasn't even properly in that race to begin with. Similarly, the Christian faith is the ultimate race. 
that we are to run with endurance, keeping our eyes on the prize, the Lord Jesus. So this evening, three points. Since the Christian faith is a race, you must enter the race. Second, since the Christian faith is a race, you must run unhindered. And third, since the Christian faith is a race, you must run with endurance. So firstly, since the Christian faith is a race, you must enter the race. And it must be the correct race that you are running. Like our champion runner, what good is it if you're not even in the correct race? Read with me in verse 1. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now the writer links this to the previous chapter. Hebrews chapter 11 has been called the honor roll of the Old Testament, also known as the Saints Hall of Fame. And it's often said that people say that the great cloud of witnesses described in verse 1 is something akin to the saints of old cheering us on. But I'm afraid I'm going to have to burst that bubble. Those saints are far too busy worshiping God to be cheering us on. The passage has a different meaning. Think of it this way. This week, Sue and I went to my son Luke's prize giving, where he did very well, by the way. But as we sat in the school hall, I saw large wooden boards on the walls on the sides of the hall, listing the great achievers in the history of the school. And we see a lot of that in a lot of our schools in the country. For example, we might read the list of the head boy and the head girl for that year, or the ducks for each year, or we might read of the record holder for the most tries scored in the rugby season, or the holder of the 200-meter sprint record. Now, are those past pupils looking down on the current pupils cheering them on? No, they're not. But their achievements and accomplishments are placed there as a reminder of the great deeds of the past and as a motivation for the current pupils to do better than them. Similarly, the great cloud of witnesses listed by the writer of Hebrews is a reminder of the faith and endurance of those saints as an encouragement to us believers. Those saints of old had as their ultimate object of faith the Lord Jesus. Look a little bit further back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 to 40, where it says, And all these, talking about these saints of old, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That is, they didn't live to see the Lord Jesus in their lifetimes. Because God had provided something better for us, us believers, being in the right race. So that apart from us, uh, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. This means that their faith is made perfect by what we have received, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our race, the right race. Listen carefully, it also means that if such a dim light of grace that shone on the Old Testament saints produced such perseverance, how much more should we display endurance when the full glory of God's grace through Christ shines so fully on us? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 to 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, 
so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. It's again, your race, our race. Peter explains it further in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 12. He says, And to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what personal time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you. So the example of the endurance of those saints was serving you and me. This means that we must be in the right race. It's only for those who are called by God and quickened by the Holy Spirit. Begs the question, are you running the right race? Are you running the same race that those hearers of the faith ran? It reminds me of a story that Clint Archer told us of a man who was studying at the Master Seminary who actually came to a saving knowledge of the Lord whilst studying at Master's. He'd managed to convince the admissions committee, his own church, even himself, that he was saved, but he wasn't. I have to ask you, are you calling him Lord, Lord, but deep down you know you are unsaved? Are you feeding the hungry in the Lord's name, but in your heart of heart you are starving spiritually because you have a heart of stone? Are you giving the thirsty something to drink in the Lord's name, but your heart is a desert of spiritual death? Or maybe you know you are not saved, but you desperately want to be saved. I urge you, come before the Lord now. Acknowledge your sin. Accept that Christ died on the cross as a payment for your sin in your place. Repent. Turn from your sins. Acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior so that you can be sure you are running the right race. Secondly, since the Christian faith is a race, you must run unhindered. Read with me again in verse 1, where it says, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Notice here that the writer differentiates between encumbrance and sin. Why would he do that? In the context of the letter to the Hebrews, we can see that encumbrance most likely refers to the Hebrew Christian's tendency to hang on to the requirements of the law in order to be saved. Obeying the law was still so deeply ingrained in them from their lifetime of being Jewish. The writer is telling them that they must lay aside those encumbrances. There was another church in the New Testament that was bewitched by this encumbrance of law-keeping. And this was the church at Galatia. Paul said to them, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? And he says later in that chapter, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The encumbrance of the law 
to the, the Hebrew Christians was a very real temptation. So how does this look to us today? Well, there are indeed some cults that do demand that we keep the law as part of our salvation. Like the Judaizers in the book of Acts, one of them is called the Hebrews Roots Movement. And they advocate a return to the fulfillment of the Torah as part of the requirements of faith. However, far more subtle, far more dangerous is the idea that we must keep our salvation by obeying, rather than seeing our obedience as an outworking of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. We think that God demands we read 187 verses of our Bible every day, pray for 27 minutes and 34 seconds every day, and that we share the gospel with three and a half people every week, and that we tithe 14.6% of our income, and if we do sin, we must double all of that to overcome the sin we committed. It's subtle and often we don't think of it outright. It's legalism and it's pride. We think that we're good enough to contribute to our salvation. But Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. John Calvin said, to be Christians under the law of grace doesn't mean to wander unbridled outside the law, but to be engrafted in Christ, by whose grace we are free from the curse of the law, and by whose spirit we have the law engraved on our hearts. Those are the encumbrances. But the writer also talks about the sin. Sin must be dealt with. Sin is like a dead weight strapped around our ankles, like our champion runner having a three kg weight around his ankles. If you have unrepentant sin in your life, it will hinder your prayers, hinder your devotions, it will impede your race of faith, and if left unresolved, it calls your salvation into question. King David writes in Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And then he says, but I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Perhaps you are harboring unrepentant sin. And are you trying to compensate for it by going out of your way to do good works? Perhaps you're using a blunt pencil with your business accounts and you're lining your pockets. Yet you try to assuage your guilt by attending every service, volunteering for every outreach program, phoning encouraging fellow believers, volunteering for every roster possible, but you know you are living in sin. That is the case, I'm afraid for you. Because if left unchecked, God may withdraw his restraining grace on your life for a time so that you may eventually see the vileness of that sin. 1689 Confession of Faith says about this, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts to chastise them 
for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts. Why? That they may be humbled. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. And to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. Couldn't have said it better myself. So if this is you, I plead with you, run back to Christ. Learn the deceitfulness of your own heart so that you may be more careful and watchful in future. So that you may run the race unhindered. Third, since the Christian faith is a race, you must run with endurance. Let's read again verses two and three, where it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Endurance is agony. Endurance, however, is essential. Whether the suffering is because of chastising by God for our sins or it is the deep, dark valley of despair due to horrendous circumstances, we must endure. After the Columbine school shooting tragedy, father of Rachel Scott, Darren, said this, everyone wrestles with questions about good and evil, and we continue to wrestle with these same issues, but in some ways, the losses we have endured have helped us experience a deeper level of trust in God and a more accepting faith that he knows exactly what he is doing. And interestingly, that endurance is a weapon against the enemy. In that brilliant book, Screwtape Letters, by C.S. Lewis, the elderly demon Screwtape writes to the young demon Wormwood. Near the end of one of his letters, he writes this, do not be deceived, Wormwood, Our cause is never more in danger, that's the cause of the enemy, than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. But where do we get the strength from to endure? Where do we get the strength that allows us to say that the loss of a child helps us experience a deeper level of trust in God? Jesus is the source of our strength to endure. How? Three ways. First, our very faith exists because of him. Look at verse two. Jesus is the author of our faith. It was he that took up that divine quill and wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life. Without him, we have no faith. Without him, all those saints that went before us would have no faith and would have had no reason to hope. Second, Jesus completed the race ahead of us. 
Look at verse 2. It says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We have the assurance of Christ's completed work to spur us on. And third, our faith continues to be dependent on Jesus. See in verse two, the writer says, fixing our eyes. It's an ongoing reality, a day by day, moment by moment reality. His endurance has won our salvation and the strength to endure. So Ernest Shackleton, that great Antarctic explorer, is actually most famous not for completing his third great goal of crossing the Antarctic. He actually never accomplished that goal. But he's rather is most famous for rowing his men 720 nautical miles through the roughest ocean in the world from their wrecked ship, uh, ironically called the Endurance, to safety on South Georgia Island. And one of his most famous quotes is this. By endurance, we conquer. So it is with the Christian race. We conquer by enduring with Christ, our ultimate example and strength. Baptist missionary Adoniram Judson was only 24 years of age when he arrived in Burma, it's modern day Myanmar, with his 23-year-old wife, Anne. they just lost their first child stillborn on the boat trip from India. Almost all the other missionaries had already left Burma or had died there. Even the great William Carey told him not to go to Burma because it was such a dangerous mission field. Today, we would actually call it an entirely closed country. He would spend the next 38 years there until his death at the age of 61. His first wife bore him three children all three died. Anne succumbed to smallpox. They endured a lifelong battle with 42 degree heat, cholera, dysentery, malaria, and war. At one point, he was imprisoned and tortured daily for 17 months on suspicion of being a British spy. Overall, he lost two wives, seven of his 13 children, and many colleagues. But, they eventually baptized their first convert six years after arriving. He kept running the race that he had entered as a young man of 20. He kept enduring. He ran unhindered. He laid aside the encumbrances of life's comforts and he daily fought his sin. By the turn of the 20th century, there were 3,700 Baptist congregations in Myanmar nearly three-quarters of a million members, nearly two million affiliates. He had run the ultimate race. He had endured. He had kept his eyes on the prize. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, running the race of the Christian faith is hard. We were so grateful for the promise of the ultimate prize, for that finish line that lies before us where we will one day hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. 
Thank you that we have the example of the saints of old that went before us. We're so grateful that we have received the full expression of your will through the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege. Forgive us for taking for granted that great gift. Give us strength to keep running this great race of faith with endurance. Help us to deal with the encumbrances and the sins that so easily entangle. And Father, for those here tonight that are not yet in the right race, I pray that your Holy Spirit will convict them of sin right now. Help them to realize their deep and desperate need for a savior so that they may come to know you and that we may run the race with them with our eyes fixed on the ultimate prize, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.